large appearance tonight are the Rocky Mountain Toad and the Wanderlust 11 year old. Which was depicted as a springtime. And it's a Belgian Golden Ale, 6.7%. Um, the alcohol by volume, 23% international bitterness units. Dried coral and whole body. This beer is brewed with French culinary lavender. Just in time for one letter. Slight notes, apparently safe, very pleasant, unusual. The other one is an infrared pale, in India pale ale, which had a lambda beside it, which really meant nothing to me, but Frank, because Frank is an engineer, he remembered lambda means infrared. 7.2% alcohol by value, 91 IBUs. This red India pale ale is completely visible to the naked eye. Completing an eerie trifecta of Chinook, Simcoe, and North River Hops, this IPA showcases a surprising balance. Measured IBUs demonstrate the difficulty in measuring bitterness, since this is a nicely round and very drinkable beer. Now, since unlike Frank, I don't have all sorts of valuable things to say about beer, I usually talk about things going on at the breweries here in town, and I will just mention that there's something called the um, Oh God, I can't remember right now. <laughs> There's a, yeah, a consumer bulk online thing, and uh, Holly Daly, our baby brewery, was just voted number one in the Denver metro area. So it is, yeah, okay, it's everybody's favorite brewery now. Yeah, that's the problem, I can't remember. <laughs> no, it's Holly Daly, I'm sorry, I just can't remember the, uh, the voting thing. They were voted number one by some group of people who were on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> and then the other vaguely bearish thing I have to say is that for the zillionth year in a row, the Ace High Tavern was voted one of the top dive bars in the Denver metro area. So you can't say we're getting too gentrified in Golden. We've still got one of the top ten dive bars in the <laughs> and I will also mention we have beer glasses for sale, Colbert beer box glasses. They are uh, $20 for four of them or $6 for one. Thank you. Thank you, Deputy Chief of Commission. We appreciate that beer. So, we have an exciting speaker this evening that I'm going to take a moment to introduce. Um, I think it was really a year or two ago that Secretary Jimenez was in Golden. Do you all remember that? He came by. And um, I took my teenage son with me. Who can be sarcastic? And um, after we left, he, he would just, all day long, he kept making reference to the mix. Everything was about energy mixes and the talk we went to. So that became a big theme with him. So when I saw that, I did, um, in the speaker's description that she was going to talk about energy mix, I couldn't help but think, oh, maybe that's where you got it from. Part of the lingo. Part of the lingo. Anyway, so tonight we have a really interesting talk about the evolution of wind energy in Colorado and beyond. We have with us a professor from the School of Mines who also works with NREL to do research there. I'm sure she'll tell us in much more detail all about that. She actually is from Alaska. She herself is an electrical engineer, but her father, we found out, quizzing her sort of briefly right before, right as soon as I met her, that um, her father was a mechanical engineer, but he's not too alarmed that she's an electrical engineer. 
because she does so much mechanical work. So somehow they've worked it out. Um, and I'm going to let her fill you in on the rest of the talk. So I would like to introduce to you Dr. Katherine Johnson. I've been told that I need to stand very close to the microphone. So tell me if I stray too far. So thank you so much to the Golden Beer Talks organizers and to all of you for attending tonight. Um, I do actually work as a professor in my day job, so I will try to keep this um, engaging and not fall into too many of my bad professor habits. Um, I'm really excited to be here because I always love to talk about wind energy and wind energy research and my area. And um, in fact, determined as I was going through dry runs for this that I really couldn't go in through the entire history that uh, I wanted to, the entire evolution of wind from the, the start until today. Um, but we have some pretty exciting history in Colorado. How many of you were here in 2004? How many of you remember Amendment 37, the Renewable Portfolio Standard? Awesome. So we were the first state in the US to implement a renewable portfolio standard by ballot initiative. So the first group of people, citizens of the state, to say, we want more renewables on our grid. Let's do that. There are other states that have these standards that said we have to meet X percent renewables by some year, but they were all put in place by the legislatures or the governors various other groups, not the people of the state. So our current renewable portfolio standard has been uh, um, updated actually since then, and we are on track to meet 30% renewable energy electricity generation by uh, 2020. So that's kind of an exciting, uh, exciting time to be here. Great time to be researching wind, solar, any renewables in Colorado. So where we are today, we're at about 13.6% of our electrical energy generation in Colorado from renewables. A large portion of that is wind. Wind is uh, less expensive at the utility scale than most of the other options we have, aside from like large-scale hydro, but we don't have a lot of great options for large-scale hydro in Colorado, so that's why we have a lot of wind. Um, we are mandated to have some solar, and that's great. Colorado's got a great solar resource, and so as far as I'm concerned, we need to be promoting all of these areas. They all need to work together to get us where we need to be. Um, some of the other statistics that I wanted to bring up, exciting times to be in uh, wind in Colorado, and this is the stuff I don't have memorized, so I brought my notes with me for these. So how many of you, so I can put things in perspective, have driven north Boulder and seeing the wind turbines east of 93, most of you, okay. So that's the National Renewable Energy Labs National Wind Technology Center. And so to put things in perspective, there are about 10 megawatts of wind installed capacity there. That means that if you look at all the turbines that they have there, the peak amount of power that they can produce is 10 megawatts if you sum them all up. So if we look at the statistics and how that compares, in Colorado in 2014, the last year that I could find reliable data, um, we had about 3,000 megawatts installed. So that means uh, 300 times what you can see in that little group of wind turbines on the radar of the building. In the US, we were at 61,000 megawatts. So 
Colorado has about one twentieth of the U.S. installed storage capacity. Um, as far as we go here, there's a couple of uh, great reasons why we want wind and why we want more wind in Colorado, and that leads to research and development that I'm going to get into here in a few minutes. So, two of the biggest ones that are relevant to Colorado are uh, carbon, so we all know with respect to climate change, and water, which is clearly a big issue here in Colorado. And so, if any of you don't know, um, fossil fuel electricity generation draws a lot of water. It's used in cooling and it's used in steam production, and it's used in, in various other ways. Some of that water gets returned to the environment, so it's not all just gone and disappears. But if you look at the water avoided, water use avoided by the wind energy that we have in Colorado in 2014, we avoided uh, using 4.6 billion gallons of water in Colorado that year, just by the 13.6% wind that we have on our grid. And in the US as a whole, that number was actually uh, 182, oh sorry, 68 billion gallons of water. So that's the equivalent in the US of 215 gallons of person. So we are clearly reducing water usage through increased uh, use of wind for energy generation. Now, we're also, significantly reducing our greenhouse gas emissions. Um, within Colorado, we've avoided production in 2014 of 8.4 million metric tons, which is the equivalent of 1.8 million cars on the road. So that's pretty significant if you look at the numbers. Um, and in the U.S., those numbers uh, actually, since the U.S. only emits about 4.4% of its uh, electrical energy from wind, the equivalent number that they came up with was 26.4 million cars. We also have last statistic that talks about how cool wind is that I wanted to share um, is jobs, so economic development within the state. Uh, the last estimate available again in 2014 estimated that between 6,000 and 7,000 full-time equivalent jobs in Colorado were directly associated with wind energy. And so that's all sorts of different types of jobs, and we can talk more about that in a little bit. All right, so that's kind of the background. That's why we think this is really cool. It's got environmental benefits. It's got uh, economic benefits. Where are we now? So there, um, the U.S. Department of Energy put out a report a few years back called 20% Wind by 2030. And that report laid out the pathway that the U.S. would have to take in order to achieve that 20% renewable wind-specific penetration into the electricity grid um, by the year 2030, and found that it was an economically viable pathway. It's something that we can do without destroying our economy. Um, Colorado's obviously contributing to that at our 13.6%. And we are contributing in so many other ways by the research, the development, the manufacturing, the policy, everything else that people here in Colorado are working on um, in order to achieve that. And so that includes uh, people at the National Renewable Energy Lab, obviously homegrown uh, cool research facility that I'm affiliated with, so I'm only going to plug them in the positive direction. I think they're really great. Um, at the national, uh, at the, all of the universities, there's people studying 
One of the reasons that I get so excited about doing wind energy research is because there are so many people who have to work together in so many different areas. And if you think about um, the National Academy of Engineering's grand challenges, you think about these huge problems that we have to solve that we can't solve in our individual discipline silos, like, like you often see at universities, where people want to just do really esoteric research in one area, and it's great, and I'm not just discounting their research. But to solve the actual problems, you need to be able to work together and to look at the engineering and to look at the science and to look at the policy and the social science research and uh, education outreach. Everybody needs to be working together and we have all of that here. So I am just one representative from the engineering side technically, which I guess is maybe part of the reason I got invited here. Um, so I'm going to focus my talk on, um, on the electrical engineering side because that's what I know the most about, but I also am happy to answer all sorts of questions. I've been working in this area for 10 years. I've been schmoozing with people outside of engineering for that entire time, so I've picked up a few things along the way. So I have a prop. I was told I wasn't allowed to use PowerPoint, so I had to bring in something. <laughs> so this is a wind turbine. This is a scale replica of a turbine called the Northwind 100 turbine, which is actually one of the turbines you can see at the National Wind Technology Center as you drive north to Boulder. This is actually a turbine that looks really small. You can see it from 93, but you probably aren't noticing it because all the other ones are bigger. Um, so it's a 100 kilowatt turbine. That means that it, it, at the peak wind power, it's producing 100 kilowatts of power. A lot of your uh, light bulbs are about 60 watts. So that's a lot of light bulbs. But it's still pretty small. And there's actually details here, so I didn't have to write them all down in my notes. Um, the diameter of the rotor, so if you look at a circle that's created as these uh, Blades spin around, that diameter is uh, 19 meters. The hub height is 25 meters. So from here to the ground is 25 meters. So it's big. And if you had stood under it and looked up at it, you would think, oh, this is a pretty big structure. But it's actually small compared to a lot of what else we're doing these days. And so I brought this in partly because it was the turbine that I had a scale model available to bring in. Um, but also just to point out some of the key features. So what is a wind turbine? So in its most basic sense, a wind turbine takes, elect or takes energy from the wind and converts it into electrical energy. So what's going on here? All right, this is a little bit hard because you guys are all wrapped around me. But pretend that the wind is coming from over there and it's going through and it's making these blades spin. So what do you think is happening to the wind between here and here? There's absolutely turbulence, yep. Slow down, absolutely, yep. Those are two great answers. You guys are good students. You want to come to my class and remind my other students not to just sit on their cell phones? Uh, <laughs> No, seriously. So yeah, so 
So what the wind turbine is doing is it's extracting that kinetic energy from the wind. And so it's saying, take, take fast wind here, make it into slow wind here. And it's converting that into kinetic energy, rotational energy of this mechanical structure. So there's a lot of energy stored in these blades as they're spinning. They're really, it's a really big system. And then what's happening is you go through uh, into the generator and you've got all those coils that if I were a real electrical engineer, I could explain to you better, but you know, I do all my work in mechanical these days. So anyway, it's uh, producing an alternating current cycle. It's producing electrons that flow down cables in the tower and flow out into the electric grid and uh, provide us all with our lighting and other such needs. So that's what's happening with the wind turbine. Uh, oh, one thing I forgot to mention, it's a good thing I checked my notes. These blades that you can see uh, operate on exactly the same principles as the wings on your airplane. So they operate under the same principles of aerodynamic lift and drag. Um, we don't need to go into the details there, but they are very carefully crafted. And there's actually still a lot of research going on not by my group, but in general, about how to make those airfoils even better, even more efficient. Are they adjustable? That's a great question. So that comes on to three slides from now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> because before I got into why we want to adjust the blades, I wanted to talk for just a minute about what my engineering specialty area actually is. Because I'm a control systems engineer, which is a subset of electrical or mechanical or aerospace engineering. It actually falls in various different departments. And I wanted to explain what control systems is so that I could speak more intelligently to that. So I'm guessing that most of you have cruise control in your car. Sometimes I ask my students and they tell me their cars are too old. Presumably, <laughs> uh, <laughs> more of you have nicer cars than my students. I don't know. Anyway. Um, so cruise control works by you decide how fast you want to go and you tell the car, I want to go 60 miles an hour. The car then has a sensor, senses how fast it's going, and there's a computer inside your car that compares those two values and it says, all right, say we're going too slow, we're only going 50 miles an hour, I need to open the throttle, I need to give more power to the engine to speed up the car to achieve the 60 miles an hour that you asked me to. And the car can do that even in the presence of what we call in control engineering disturbances. So for example, the wind picks up, or you go up a hill, or you go down a hill, any of these disturbances, that computer in your car is smart enough to figure out what to do to the throttle, how much power to supply to the engine, or by the engine, to achieve the speed that you want. And so when we talk about uh, wind energy systems then, we're kind of trying to do the same thing. So the, the control systems theory is about, it, it's not really about the programming of the controller. I mean, sure, you can do that. But it's really about the theory about how well that's done. So for your car, is it kind of jerky? If it's maybe a cheaper car? Or does it do it really smooth so you hardly notice that it's speeding up? It's about the theory behind how you achieve kind of those, those nice transitions. And so with the wind turbine, 
It's doing the exact same thing. Control systems applied to wind energy says we want to, for example, spin the rotor at a desired speed, just like your car. You want your car to, to go at a, a specific speed. But what's happening with the wind here? Is it constant? No. So the wind is a really cool thing from an engineering perspective because it's both the driving source of energy. So we have to use it. I mean, it's essential to this operation, but it's also constantly changing. And so we have to figure out how to achieve that control to get the children get the children to do what we want. And I'm going to wrap myself in space with the lights now. Um, so one of the ways that we do that, thank you for the lead-in question, is by what we call pitching the blades. And unfortunately on this model, the blades aren't really pitchable. So I get to do my wind turbine dance. I love this when I teach wind energy classes. I get to stick out my arms and I say, okay, imagine that I'm a wind turbine. You guys are the wind coming at me. And normally I'm operating, you know, kind of spinning like this. And because of the airfoil properties of my arms, producing enough force to keep those blades turning. Well, I can actually change that surface. I can point it more or less towards you guys as the audience. And that changes how much energy we get out of the wind. And so that's actually one of the primary ways that we achieve what we want to achieve out of this wind. Uh, we also have a couple other mechanisms. We have generator torque, which I don't really want to go into the details on here. I'm happy to answer questions if people have questions later, but it's a little harder to explain quickly. And then finally, we have what's called the yaw position, which is basically saying if the wind starts over from you guys, and then it changes so that it's coming over there, the turbine is originally facing you guys, and then it can turn to face the wind. So we're trying to get basically as close to pointing into the land as we can. That's it. So for control systems and wind, we're basically looking into all the theory about how we achieve those things. And, and we also look at other things like how likely are those blades to hit that tower? Are they flexible enough to bend? You guys think about it for a minute. Think about for example, a ruler versus a yardstick. Which one kind of feels like it can bend further? The yardstick, yeah. So the bigger your structure gets, the harder it is to keep it stiff. Relatively small turbine, like this 100 kilowatt turbine, it's not all that hard to prevent these blades from hitting this tower as the turbine operates. But, I know one of the reasons that I was invited here today was to talk about my new research project that's going to develop a much, much larger wind turbine, or at least the design for a much larger one. And so this project, one of, um, one of several research projects that I'm actively working on right now, but it's a pretty exciting one, is funded by the Department of Energy's Advanced Research Projects Agency slash Energy. And so, some of you may have heard of DARPA, which is the Defense Advanced Projects Research Agency. This is basically the energy version of DARPA. And 
the idea of ARPA-E is to fund projects that have the potential to be really transformative and disruptive, but are also very high risk. So things that people are like, huh, I'm not even quite sure if that's possible, but I think it's worth trying because if it succeeds, it's going to give us some really big gains. And so I'm partners with a, a group of five other institutions um, led by the University of Virginia. Our, our principal investigator is Eric Roth there, and I have to give him full credit for the original idea. It was his idea. He asked me to participate because the control systems is so important for this structure. But his idea was to design a wind turbine with really flexible segmented blades and spin that turbine around. So if you guys are still the wind direction coming from your side, he said, let's do this. Let's turn it into a downwind turbine and let's make these blades really flexible and in fact inspired by palm trees. So palm trees in general can survive hurricanes because they're not trying to be super stiff. They're allowing themselves to bend in the wind. If we tried to do that upwind, there's no way we'd succeed. Blades would be hitting the tower for sure. But if we do that downwind, there's a chance that we'll succeed. And so what I thought would be fun for this talk would be to say, all right, how much bigger is this other turn? So I looked up the statistics, and I got out of my calculator, and I said, okay, scale model, this turbine, oh gosh, I didn't write it down. I think these, these blades are about 20 centimeters long each, and uh, the, like I said, the diameter is 19 meters, so 20 centimeters to 9.5 meters, roughly, scale we're talking about. I figured out for this turbine that we're going to design, I was going to bring in a styrofoam model of this blade to show you guys. I figured out I'd need to make a blade five meters long to keep it to the same scale as this. It's going to be a lot bigger. And that's why we're going to need control systems. So control systems are really fabulous when it comes to really flexible structures and trying to basically make a wet noodle do what you want it to with not as many control methods as you'd like, not as many what we call actuators as you'd like. And in fact, this is one of the high-risk pieces of this research. Um, the fact that in the past there have absolutely been downwind flexible wind turbines that have failed because the blades have struck the tower. But one of the things, we have a bunch of new things in research now since then, so I'm not going to say that it's all on us. But one of the things that has advanced a lot since those turbines failed is the control systems capabilities and technologies. So we actually have, of the six institutions involved in this research project, two of us are control specialists. That's how important that we think that this is um, to the research. How do we keep that turbine operating over the desired 20-year lifetime, um, especially in extreme conditions. And so we're going to do some really fun things with this. Um, unfortunately, in the first three-year project that's funded by ARPA-E initially, we're not going to be able to build this 50-megawatt turbine. We're going to do the design and simulation, and we're going to be building a prototype. So 
Again, as you drive north towards Boulder in about two and a half years, you will be able to see a small scale prototype of this turbine on uh, one of the existing towers that's already there. And um, I'll be happy to take your questions then about how things are going for the larger scale. But we're going to do some really interesting field tests, which is, I think, part of the reason that Arcadia decided to fund us. Um, we've got great partnership with NREL. Um, I'm actually wearing my mines hat for this particular project, but obviously I'm also affiliated with NREL. So there, we're going to have some great testing capabilities, which is going to, I think, really advance the science and the engineering a lot. Um, I should also give a shout out to our other collaborators. I mentioned Virginia already, who's leading it. Um, we're also working with the University of Illinois um, and University of Colorado is our other control systems group and Sandia National Labs. Um, so who, who have done a slightly smaller design. So they've done a 13 megawatt turbine design without these flexible blades. We're going to take that design further to 50 megawatts with the flexible blades. All right. How am I on time? <laughs> oh, I don't run it. Well, that's actually one of the possible ending points I can end it. So I'm happy to take questions now. <laughs> well, if you have more to say, though, give us another two minutes. Yeah, then we'll take a break. Oh, okay. yep. okay. Well, well, no, I'll stop. Okay. <laughs> I'll take questions. generator to produce electricity at 60 hertz, which is the frequency of electricity that we use here in the United States. It turns out that that one is actually less important because my friends in the power electronics engineering world have done some really fabulous things in the last decade. And so now we can, it's not perfect, but we can take electricity at anything other than 60 hertz and convert it into 60 hertz to feed it into the electric grid. We have some losses, we clearly have some costs, um, but again, they've made some really great strides. So we're less worried about that today than we were 10 or 15 years ago. So as fast as you can go. So as fast as you can go. So it turns out, and there's a lot of details here that if I had a chalkboard, I would totally be drawing on. It turns out that because of the way the airfoils are designed, the blades, the, the aerodynamic properties of the blades, there is an optimal tip speed ratio. There's an optimal speed that the turbine turns compared to the wind speed coming in. And so what that means is we want to spin it faster when the wind is coming in faster and slower when the wind is coming in slower. So there is an optimal speed, but it's actually an optimal speed ratio. And that's where we get the most energy conversion from that kinetic energy of the wind into the kinetic energy of the spinning turbine. Oh gosh, I don't know how to pick. I don't get this many questions at a time in class. Uh, so are gearboxes on their way out 
I, under, I understand that uh, Vestas think, um, calculates that they have to replace the gearbox every 10 years. That could be, it could all be cheaper if they wouldn't have to do that. Yeah, so gearboxes have been the bane of uh, wind energy for a long time. Um, they have got, what's that? Just put it in automatic transmissions. Oh, transmissions, yeah. Well, you know, most people have talked about continuously variable transmissions, for example, so we can get some things more often. So there are really two different research paths going on. There are absolutely people and companies who are working on what we call direct drive generators. And yeah, yeah. There's nothing worth looking at inside that model for, for this demonstration. I really wish I could draw this. But um, yeah, so there's there's groups that are working on basically the generator is connected exactly to the rotor, the blades that are spinning, so it's turning at the same speed. That's a really slow speed for a generator. Normally our generators are, spin, are spinning at like 1800 RPM or something like that, as opposed to 12 RPM. Um, so there's people who are working on that, they're working on better generator designs that allow that. There's other people who are working at better gearboxes. And so I don't think, my personal opinion is that it hasn't yet been decided whether the most optimal route is to improve the gearboxes or to go with the direct drive system. It's a great question. Success question for David. Seems like to me if you've got to so yeah, so what we're hoping is that there's enough extra energy absorbed by basically the blades bending that it helps to alleviate that stress, but that's absolutely something we need to be looking at. So every time you make that thing taller, that's going to be an awful strong tower. It's going to be a huge tower, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's not a simple question. Like I said, ARPA e funds projects that are um, potentially transformative and disruptive and also somewhat likely to fail because they're really hard questions. Yeah. I think you had the next question. Um, uh, can you talk about wind generators in terms of uh, efficiency? Like what proportion of the total amount of wind of energy hitting them gets turned into electricity? And so what kinds of numbers do you look at and how much room is there for improvement? Yeah, that's a great question. So I'm going to make you guys do a quick thought experiment. So the first stage of energy conversion, like we talked about, is from the kinetic energy in the wind into the spinning kinetic energy of the rotor. So if the turbine were 100% efficient at that, if it extracted all of the energy, all of the moving energy from the wind, what would happen to the wind behind the turbine? Exactly. Those are good. All right. So we actually physically can't extract all of the energy from the wind because that would cause the turbine to stop working. There'd be no more path through the turbine. And so there was a guy named Betts who did some analysis and um, came up with what we call the Betts limit which is a theoretical max that we can convert from the wind to the rotational energy. So I haven't gotten to electricity yet. All bets are all, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> bets, B-E-T-Z, yes. <laughs> um, so the bets limit is about 59%. Our modern turbines are producing about 45%. So they're not quite, 
there, but they're not actually too far different. Um, and then from there on down, there's actually pretty high efficiency. When you're working um, at you know near rated conditions, near the optimal condition for the turbine, you're getting in the high 90s percent efficiencies for the later stages. So you know maybe 40% overall instead of 45%. It's a great question. I don't know who this is. Uh, is there someone over here and then over here? Uh, yeah. more than one question, but I'm All right, pick one. I'm trying to look at it, yeah. Uh, so do you have to use, from a control standpoint, uh, like adaptive control depending on the type of filter it is, and you have all the integration periods to mm -hmm. compensate for dust? Well, I love it. Control engineering question. <laughs> um, well, uh, so my PhD research was on actually adaptive control. Um, and so I looked at all of the parameters that we don't understand about the turbine and how do we adapt to that. So it wasn't for the wind conditions, but it was about all the things we don't know about the turbine itself, which turns out to be quite a lot. Um, but most industry controllers are not adaptive because there's no stability guarantees. That means they're not basically, they can't prove that they're going to protect the turbine in all cases, and that's more important to them than getting everything perfect. And then on the so we're going to definitely be able to control that first hinge. So now you guys are still the wind on the wind turbine. So now, okay, I'm going to have to turn around. The wind is coming from here. Now I'm the wind turbine. The hinges that makes it they make it stow in the case of a hurricane. So we're going to have full control over that degree of freedom. We're going to keep our pitch control, our torque control, our yaw control. We don't yet know if we're going to need any other actuators. That's part of the research. So I'm, I'm actually not trying to be coy about any of these things. The contract is literally signed at the beginning of April. So we have not done the research yet. We've just proposed it. All right. Are there some um, cool proposals for flying the turbines as kites? Yeah, there's some great research out there on kite-based turbines. I haven't done any of that. But sure, there's, I mean, like not needing to build that tower structure, that's pretty significant cost savings. Um, and I think we're probably going to see more of that as we try to understand the dynamics. Yeah. Um, well, this, um, may not be the right question for an electrical engineer, but um, when when the blades are in their kind of protecting position, um, say a bird hits them, then obviously there's a lot less area, so that's less likely that something's going to hit them. Are they more likely to break when they're in that bent position versus a, a full out position? Well, we think that they're less likely to break as long as we've aligned the turbine correctly with the wind because there's a lot less force on them compared to just the winds hitting the flat side of the blade. Um, a utility scale turbine, if it breaks because a bird hit it, then there is something else serious <laughs> about it. Yeah, like an airplane size bird. Yeah. <laughs> a dragon. Okay, too much to even throw into it. Yeah. <laughs> So, great question. 
actually gets hit by a tornado, I would give the odds to the tornado. Because, um, I have seen pictures of turbines that have been knocked down in Japan due to hurricanes. So it, it has happened, and tornadoes can be even worse. Great question. I forgot to address that, and I was thinking about it uh, earlier, and then I forgot to write it down, and my memory is shot these days. So, yeah, so making the turbine bigger. So, what we found so far throughout the years of turbine evolution research is that making turbines bigger always makes the energy cost less. Um, and so we're trying to continue that trend, and who knows, maybe we'll reach an upper limit someday. Um, but one of the reasons that we can't otherwise do turbines this big, besides the control systems and all the other stuff, is that we can't transport waves that are that big. And uh, so, I mean, I've already talked to a couple of you who have seen these blades going down the highways, right? They're massive, and that's for kind of a small turbine compared to what we're trying to build. So if we can convert, if we can transport these blades into segments, we're now enabling a much larger structure, um, which history has shown us has, has achieved cost of energy reduction. So two of the reasons for that cost of energy reduction, now that we can actually do it, is we can transport the blades. Wind speeds tend to be higher when you're higher off the ground. So the bigger the turbine is, the higher wind speeds you get. And, um, and more reliable. Yeah, yep. And the, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Right, yeah. So you have wind blowing at a certain speed, a higher percentage of the time. Um, and then the second piece is you need less uh, what we call balance of station costs. So you only need one road and one power electronics converter for 50 megawatts, as opposed to you know 16 of those for a three megawatt. So that actually does add up. Yeah. Um, this is sort of a late person. But, you know, whenever we're on 93, we go quite a bit, you know, they're like never moving. And, you know, I'm expecting it to look like giant windmills. And I'm like, are they immune? Are you not testing them? Or I am so glad you asked that because it's a really common uh, question and it's really important. So there's two reasons. So one, how many of you think that we live in a great location here for windows? Here. We actually live in a really, really bad location for women. Right here along the front line. Eastern Colorado is great. Right here, we get really high winds and really calm days. There aren't actually that many days here that are really good for producing wind electricity. And so a lot of the times that you're driving there, the winds are either too high or too low. Every year at that location, we get 100 mile an hour winds, like on the ground. So hurricane force winds, we get our car windows broken. I mean, it's, it's really serious there. Uh, which is why we have the test facility there, because then we can test the turbines in these conditions. So they would be moving in a wind like that? They wouldn't be moving. They would be shut down oh. as, as stowed as they can be to keep them safe. Okay. And then the second reason is exactly what you said. It's a research facility, and so there are not always tests going on. And actually, a lot of the time, there's tests being set up or taken down. And so you can't see it necessarily, but there's instruments being installed and, and things being set up. So they're not actually running the turbines while they're getting the tests ready to go. Yeah. And we have um, an inside testing facility there that nobody's 
Yeah, you're right. There's also uh, indoor testing of various components. Yeah. I think you had your white shirt had your arm up for a while. Um, I've seen these vertical axis windmills uh, here, which are really beautiful and uh, take up a lot less space. And I was wondering how efficient, what the efficiency differential is between vertical axis turbines and, and the uh, horizontal. Yeah, horizontal axis. So this is horizontal axis. It's a little bit funny that axis means axis of rotation, so what things are spinning around. So the vertical axis ones are the ones that look kind of like a child's, like the top, the toy, they spin like that. Um, so the glib answer is that's Sandia's job, and it was decided that Sandia was going to do vertical axis and Enro was going to do horizontal axis. <laughs> um, there are some great things about vertical axis. Um, they can achieve fairly high efficiencies. There are actually some vertical axis turbines being tested at Enro. They're just all smaller ones, so they're harder to see from the road. The biggest drawback for them is that thing that I talked about, about the wind speed getting higher as you go higher off the ground. So the vertical axis turbines have some of their airfoils, which are the most expensive single components, the blades, really close to the ground. So they're not actually collecting that much energy in that lower half. So you could put a vertical axis turbine on top of a tall tower, but then you've actually gotten rid of a lot of the other benefits of vertical axis turbines, like having your weight, your generator, all that other stuff on the ground. So it's um, there are advantages and disadvantages. I'm not going to say that you know that I know for sure that horizontal axis is always the best, but there is something to say about supply and demand and the fact that all the major um, utility scale turbines are now there to be Probably kills less birds. Well, that's a great question. I'm glad you brought that one up as well. So if you look at the statistics on human-caused bird deaths, every single one of you who has looked at your cell phone tonight has killed more birds than my windows. <laughs> so human-caused bird deaths, fewer than 1 in 10,000 human-caused bird deaths is caused by a And I am not saying that we want to do more of that, we want to keep that number going down. But when we, when we kill birds, we do it way more with buildings, with cell phone towers, with house cats, with pollutants, with all of these other things than we do with wind turbines. So it's kind of a trade-off. All right. Well, I was just curious of how long um, this ARPA program has been a government program and, and whether, I'm sure it's not adequate no, I didn't do all my background research on the entire funding agency. <laughs> so I can tell you that this is the eighth ARPA E proposal I've participated in, and I was utterly shocked when it got funded. Not because I didn't think we had a good idea, but because the statistics were so bad. It looks like the shark tank. Yeah, it, it kind of does. There's several stages, and yeah, you kind of get thrown into the pool. Um, so yeah, like most, feels like most research these days, it's not adequately funded. Um, but I don't know the answers to your other questions. Let's see. You you asked one, so I'm going to try to pick people who haven't asked any yet. So when you uh, built your new ultra long flexible, how tall was your tower head? Yeah, so the tallest tower up there is uh, about 80 meters. And 
to excel to run all of the turbines at the same time. Um, we can't produce all of our 10 megawatts at once. So then the other thing to support your 150 meter power is that we're going to try starting to do on-site manufacturing of uh, towers and blades, so like 60 meter blades and 140 meter power. And like you said, that gets it up into kind of the stream where like places in the south that we can't Yeah, so we're going to do on-site manufacturing. Um, it's a new initiative at MRI. I'm basically just restating it so they're um, So that uh, we can produce things and test things there that aren't really transportable today. Um, and that's going to allow bigger, cooler turbines. It's going to make it more complicated because it's more flexible, and more flexible things are harder to control. Yep. So that's going to be fun. Keep me in a job. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. We're on repeat questions. Now. <laughs> what's the thought of AC versus DC? 
Yeah, so even though my degree says electrical engineering, <laughs> I don't do that anymore. No. Uh, there's definitely a lot of research uh, going into high voltage DC. So as we understand materials better and as we understand electricity in general, so for those of you who may not know, DC is like what you get out of a battery. It's direct current, so it's all the electrons are flowing in one direction. AC is what you get out of your outlet at out your house. The electrons are flowing back and forth, actually, and they're providing power that way. And, you know, as a whole, as global scales, most of us decided a long time ago that we were going to build AC systems to supply most of our electric needs. But there's a lot of people who are now saying, well, gosh, with some of these advances in power electronics that I mentioned earlier and some of these advances in materials for actually transmitting power, and a bunch of other things that are going on. Maybe using really high voltage direct current is actually going to be more efficient and more cost effective. Um, I think we're going to see more of it. That's, that's my thought. So grid is AC. Grid is AC. But that doesn't mean that new inner ties that we build have to be AC. And especially they're looking at DC offshore. That's a big thing because of the way the water impacts the systems. Um, and so we're saying, well, if we have a set of offshore turbines, which we don't have any of in the U.S., um, okay, we have a couple of test ones, um, then maybe we connect all of those up with a DC, high-voltage DC intertie, and then we can convert it to AC uh, for use on land. Yes. Yep. I didn't mention it because we don't really have it in Colorado. We do actually have, it's funny, we have some people working on wave energy at the National Renewable oh. Energy Lab. Um, yeah, so there's some, some cool concepts. There's actually a lot of cool concepts going on with wave energy. None of them are uh, as cost-effective yet as wind and solar, but that's probably just because they're newer in the stages of research. I think we're going to see more of it. Yeah, so your hand and your hand. Okay. Yeah, I was just going to ask, I, I know this is um, probably more of an issue with photovoltaics than wind, but there's still the on-off nature of um, wind. So can you comment on um, energy storage and how uh, any of the research that Emeril is doing on improving that? That's a really great question because we could not go to 100% wind in the U.S. with the systems that we have today because the wind is not always blowing and we don't have cost-effective storage. So there's a couple of different things. So the U.S. Uh, Department of Energy's 20% wind by 2030 does take that intermittency into account. And it says, all right, the cool thing about the U.S. or a cool thing about the U.S. is we actually have a lot of land. We're a big country geographically. And so statistically, the wind is probably blowing somewhere. So if we have a strong enough grid system, which is a big if, admittedly, um, then we can transport the wind from where it's blowing, not blowing, up to that 20-ish, maybe a little more, maybe up to 30-ish percent um, in, uh, of our electrical energy without actually needing storage and without needing very much backup power online. So something on the order of 1% to 2% natural gas um, facilities ready to fire off at 
as needed. Part of that is actually, and I didn't talk about this at all because I've been focused on engineering, but we've got some really fabulous atmospheric scientists that have been helping us to understand when we're going to get the wind and how quickly it's going to change and how turbulent it's going to be and all of these characteristics that matter so much for getting that wind. And so once we can actually reliably predict what's going to happen, we can plan for it, things get much easier. So as far as storage, there's a lot of people working on storage of various you know, chemical, water, mechanical, various types. Um, there's people in Colorado working on compressed air energy storage, which is kind of interesting, using reservoirs that we pumped the natural gas out of, um, or even some of the oil out of, and we compress air and we push it back in there, and we have too much wind electricity, and then we pump it back up. And that's a potentially promising area. Um, but I don't think, I mean, we're not yet at the place where in the United States, we could generate 100% of our electricity from wind without developing some of this further, unless we want to pay a lot more. Now, that said, I lived in Denmark for three and a half months. They have a lot more wind than we do, and the power never went out. So if you have the right connections to, say, Germany and Norway, um, and some nice trading agreements, enough land area, enough statistics, uh, you can, we can do a lot better than we are. Uh, you mentioned modeling. I recently learned that the whole modeling part and prognosis is actually uh, the most expensive part of maintaining uh, wind farms. Uh, can you speak to that for a bit? Yeah, apparently I'm supposed to be stopping talking soon, but I can speak to it briefly. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so operations and maintenance and especially things like the gearboxes, but other things go wrong. So how do we predict when those problems are going to happen and how do we uh, plan our maintenance so that you know it happens for example when wind's not going too fast so we're not really losing a lot of energy and um, that's a huge area of active research uh, going on at NREL and in other places in how we develop those models and that actually touches on control systems as well because we care about models of the system that we're trying to control mathematical uh, equations that describe this system, and those are what help us to describe when, for example, the gearboxes, uh, there's going to be too many particulates in the oil, and therefore it's going to cause all sorts of what's called pitting, it's going to uh, decay the metals in the gearboxes. Does that answer your question? Um, no, but we'll talk oh. later. <laughs> <laughs> I totally misunderstood you then, sorry. <laughs> well, I didn't know. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>